two reactions. Okay. One, phenomenal lyrics, extremely poetic, very, not at all simplistic, very layered kinds of meanings that I thought was really amazing. And I listened to, to two performance of it and how wonderfully his voice has changed. It was a much cleaner kind of sound when he first performed this piece. And then when he was doing it in a concert, he sounded like it's just all, I don't want to say it's fuzzy, but it has been enriched by life's passage. Yes. And and certainly, although I wouldn't ever say, oh, I could sing a Bruce Springs, he's definitely, when I listen to her, I go, oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard this. He's definitely yeah. in that kind of uh, collage of sounds in, in of music in my life. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Set Lessing Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. I am your host, Jesse Jackson. We are getting off the Bruce train, though I'm sure he will come up, as he often does, and we are talking classical music. We are talking creative music and sometimes breaking the rules. Tina, mm -hmm. welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, I, I can't wait to get into, I was leading a little bit of your blog, and you were talking about A to B to C, and I'm going to get to that in a minute, but in the meantime, <laughs> tell us a little about yourself. So I'm a classically, I'm a classical composer, so that means that I come to composing through years of having played the piano. I wouldn't say it's all classical music. Certainly, I played a lot of contemporary music and different kinds of music. And, and when I was in my college years, I was told I should compose, and I said, okay, whatever. And it just spoke to me as something that I really wanted to do in my life. So I think that the wonderful thing about composing is that it's, if you're just doing music without lyrics, it's very, people don't know what you're saying. So it's anonymous. It has a wonderful anonymous. People are, won't say, oh, you had a girlfriend or a boyfriend and that didn't work out well for you. Oh, you lost love again. Oh, you found love again. So it has a much more anonymous way. So I could really start to speak my truth and really learn what I was about through this medium of expression. And that was really wonderful. And then last, uh, this year, I just published a memoir called Let Your Heart Be Broken. And here is a copy of it, Life and Music from a Classical Composer. And in it, I talk about my life but I also talk about how I compose and what it means to me. And in a really funny way, dare I say Bruce Springsteen, what I've done is put words in a separate medium to my music. Okay. And talked about my life story, the difficulties that I had, the triumphs, the difficulties, and... Um, 
put words to it. And I say in the beginning of the book, um, I'll just read you a little bit. I said, I am a composer. I delight in the ebb and flow of energy, the gathering of melodies and rhythmic passages and the shaping them into a continuously moving sound. But then I also say, writing, however, is more vulnerable, truer to life storytelling. Composing is in a world of its own, both emotion and energy. I camouflage myself. I wrap myself in a language that has no direct translation. Writing reveals me naked. So that sense um, that when you're merging those two aesthetics in a singer-songwriter world, you have both the truth-telling, the the naked part, and the musical part. Uh, Yeah, one of the things I love you just said is that it's anonymous. And what I mean by that is... Jason Isbell, who is a brilliant writer, musician, talked about that everyone thinks every song he writes is autobiographical when it's often not. He's just telling a story, right? Right. But people want to believe he has a song, Elephant, about a woman fighting cancer. And it's, oh, he must have had a really good friend that fought cancer. And this is so wonderful that he's sharing this. And he's, no, I he talks about the story of it a lot to talk about but i want to start at the beginning where did you grow up and what kind of music did you listen to was there a lot of classical music in the house i grew up somewhat in the united states so in upstate new york and also in pittsburgh but i lived abroad many years so i lived in sweden for three years i lived in istanbul turkey for three years a year in Israel, a year in Germany. My mother and stepfather were professors and they liked to teach in other countries. So I had a variety of sounds around me when I was growing up, particularly in Turkey, where there was such a strong influence of of certainly not Western culture music. And even in Israel, definitely, definitely there was also that kind of more Arabic sounding kind of music. I grew up, my mother was an amateur violinist and uh, wanted me to play the piano, but I had a teacher who gave me some odd things and he gave me a lot of contemporary music. He gave me Brazilian music. He gave me a lot of different kinds of music, but I listened. I also, my mother, I went to my, the concerts that my mother played in as an amateur violinist. And I remember being mostly bored and like feeling like I wanted to roll off my chair and roll under all the seats, especially for the long pieces. Although there was a lot of music that I, I listened to and I loved. I also um, wasn't allowed to listen to popular music because my mother didn't like that, but I was allowed to buy six little, are they 33s? Little 45s, yes. So I was allowed to buy six little 45s and and my favorite songs were these boots are made for walking what's new pussycat (laughs) silhouettes on the shade is it miss mrs brown you have a lovely daughter sure i can't remember yeah Yeah. so i i did i did have some (laughs) a pop music background and certainly i was riveted by the beatles i would say i have been 
very moved by not only how they impacted my childhood and how they were so different, but how they wrote beautiful melodies. They always had beautiful, and I loved uh, Broadway musicals. So one of my favorites was West Side Story. And I came home, uh, somebody lent us the record and I listened to it every day for months. And I just loved that idea of writing beautiful melodies. It is not easy. It really isn't easy. It takes a lot of practice. So that's my musical background. Tina, when you when you started playing the piano and had you not, you mentioned in college, someone reached out to you being a composer. Before that, you had no no desire, no thought. You didn't write poems. You didn't write music. You just played. I wrote poems. I wrote little novels. I did drawings. But nobody, and this is a problem with a classical music field, they never say write your own music. And I had never written, I'd never played any music by women composers. And that omission, it wasn't that somebody said, oh, you are a woman, you can't write. But there was no example of it. There were all these dead white guys who had written music. So it never occurred to me. And so when I was in a class and they said, well, you've got to write music, I did it and fell in love with it. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S.
Tina, one of the other podcasts I listen to is Penn Gillette from Penn and Teller, the mm-hmm. magic duo. And he does a podcast and he talks about that what's changed is for the longest time, the only women in magic were the assistants, the mm-hmm. ones that were getting cut in half or disappearing or locked in a box. And that has changed over the years. And he believes that in many ways, the next generation of magic, the strongest are the people who identify as female or the, but they just have this thing. And it is, it's easy to find, I, I talked about this at the beginning of 2021, that when I started this podcast, I, I realized as I've been doing this several years, that would easy for this podcast to be nothing but a bunch of old white guys mm-hmm. talking about Bruce Springsteen or mm-hmm. other classic rock. And I didn't want that. I wanted mm-hmm. diversity right. and because I think that's important. And, right. and so it's been great. Did your mom ever give in a little bit and think, I don't like their music, but the Beatles may have a little something. I don't think I ever asked. Okay. Uh, I, she was a really diehard classical music person. So mm-hmm. I actually don't know the answer to that question. That's a good question. For me, they were really icons. I've always held them in very high esteem. Yeah. Uh, What's interesting is the term classic, classical music implies exactly as you said a bunch of old dead white guys wrote music right and and i don't often think of that oh yes there are people writing new quote-unquote classical music this instrumental that style not a pop instrumental or a soul instrumental but in that kind of a style of music correct It's not, I wouldn't say it's a style because, but it is using those kinds of instruments, those kind of performing venues that are connected to classical music. And it is at its best, it is like any of the arts, pop music, art, writing. It is representative. It is speaking out of this is where I am in my life at this time this year, this time, and I'm speaking about my life. I think that's what makes any art great. So I think in terms of Beethoven, for me, the reason he's a great composer is he was really speaking authentically about his life. And he was telling his story. And getting back to Springsteen, it's the same thing. He is speaking authentically about his life may not be a situation he knows about, but he's imbuing it with his sensibilities and his understandings. And it's something important to him. Otherwise, he wouldn't be talking about it because he's that level of artist. And so contemporary music, contemporary classical music, it's in a lot of different styles. And you might even listen to it and say, oh, it's a little bit like movie music. I hear some of those because a lot of music, movie music has actually stolen it from contemporary composers who are doing more of the research and development of new sounds and new ways and even electronics and but new ways of creating sounds and form. Tina, I ask when I have a Bruce fan on the podcast, 
can you remember when you first discovered Bruce Springsteen and what about his music spoke to you? You've mentioned Bruce a couple of times. Tell me, can you remember when you first discovered him? No, I, I actually can't. And listening to this song that you gave it gave me as homework, I have two reactions. Okay. One, phenomenal lyrics, extremely poetic, very not at all simplistic very layered kinds of meanings that I thought was really amazing. And I listened to, to two performance of it and how wonderfully his voice has changed. It was a much cleaner kind of sound when he first performed this piece. And then when he was doing it in a concert, he sounded like it's just all, I don't want to say it's fuzzy, but it has been enriched by life's passage. Yes. And, and certainly, although I wouldn't ever say, oh, I could sing a Bruce Springsteen, he's definitely, when I listen to her, I go, oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard this. He's definitely yeah. in that kind of uh, collage of sounds in, in of music in my life. Is there a modern artist like the Beatles that has spoken to you? Probably not, although definitely... The Roaches, the Roach Sisters, I always loved because of the way they write harmonies and then the way they pull the music, the glissando up. And I've always loved that, that, that kind of sound. Their um, Christmas album is in, come Thanksgiving, is in rotation. Yes. I, I love hearing them. Yeah, they and, have such a beautiful, there's something about as they say, they call it blood harmony, that mm -hmm. when you have sisters or brothers mm -hmm. or cousins, that that for some reason, the Everly brothers together, the brothers mm -hmm. give what the the roaches are not, not necessarily related together, but there is that when they sound, they blend more than just someone, just two people on the street. And, yeah. and, and because there were three of them as yes. well they had yeah. and I, I used to play them for the kids a lot I loved listening to some of the music my stepdaughters loved Avril Lavigne they just love this kind of yeah. music and and when we went on trips we had our favorite songs that we played and that was really lovely yeah um, what what was the first song you composed Oh, my goodness. The first piece I wrote was for French horn and oboe, and it was okay. terrible. Okay. It was awful. I think the first piece that I wrote that I felt really connected to that was really, uh, I felt that I had uncovered enough uh, stuff in my life that I was writing more authentically was called, actually called Blood Memory of okay. All Things. And it was a poem written by my sister, and it was talking about the connection that we have through our ancestors up to today. And it was a cello concerto. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is there a favorite instrument you like to write for, or do you mm -hmm. enjoy the orchestra? I love strings. Okay. And I particularly love cello. I it, Cello is a really amazing instrument that you open your legs for and you hold it between your legs I, it's the, really the only instrument that I know that you are really embracing with your body and the cello rests against your upper sternum 
So you get this sense of not only embracing it, but that it's resonating through you. So it's a very beautiful instrument. I happen to love strings. I love voice. I love orchestra, but strings are my favorite. Okay, good. I'll give you a chance to brag. What was the first song that when you wrote, you went, yeah, that, okay, (laughs) I may be on to something. Oh, there have been a lot of those. Um, That's good. Not that it's bragging, but I think when you are writing something and you hear it, you go, oh, that's what I meant to say. Exactly. Yeah. That's what you might see a flaw or two, but just remember that in when they were making the ancient Persian rugs, they actually put in a little mistake here and there so that the gods wouldn't get angry at them. Because if you try to be too perfect, the gut always runs afoul after a while. So as you listen to a piece, I'm sure artists always go, oh, yeah, I wish that could have been, yeah, just a little bit. But when the essence is on target for where I am in my life, and it really speaks to myself, that's when I know I've done a good job. And also, I always feel that I'm in collaboration with the listener. So my music really doesn't have a full circle until it's been received by a listener. And I am not as interested in that they get what I'm trying to say as I'm interested in what they are feeling and what it, it evokes for them. So their relationship to the music is much more important to me than they know what I'm thinking. I'm certainly not interested in that. A couple of things. One, a writer I like a lot quotes, and I think it's come from everyone who said down to Leonardo da Vinci, art is never finished, only abandoned. And I think that the other thought is one of my favorite stories is the Writer Isaac Asimov, when he was alive, was doing a lecture and he was talking about a story and someone in the audience said, no, Dr. Asimov, that's not what the story's about. And Dr. Asimov said, I wrote the story. I would think, yes, that is what it's about. And the guy supposedly said, just because you wrote it, what makes you think you know the meaning just because you wrote it, right? And Isaac, in his biography, said he realized that the guy was right. Yes. And so he says, I know what I meant it to be, Mm -hmm. but until the reader reads it, until the listener hears it, that's the other half of the conversation. Absolutely. And each reader might be different. Yes. And (laughs) I think a sign of a great piece of music, whether it's contemporary, classical, original classical, pop, soul, hip hop, whatever you want, is as you change the meaning of the song means changes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, this the way you feel about a song when you're 16 is different than when you're 26 exactly. or 36 right. or 56, correct? Uh, and that's why I always say, I don't want you to get me. I right. want you to get you. And people have heard some of my music and come up and said, this was so emotional to me. I cried or whatever they did. And I know that the fruit there is that I put out my resonance, my sound, 
you received it and something inside of you resonated. And that is, that's the best I can do. That's just amazing. Mm-hmm. I love that part of the process. Now, and, and I would say, what did you say that all works are abandoned? What, what was that? Yeah, art is never... never finished, only abandoned. <laughs> what I would say is that in truth, it's an ongoing cycle. So you're never baked. You're never done yourself. You are always in a, as a person is always in a process of evolving. And so hopefully your work will also be that way. One um, of, yeah. One of my best friends is an artist and he says he will never have a tattoo because as an artist, he would only want something that he drew on his body. And he says, there's never been anything I've drawn that six months later, I wish I couldn't go back and redraw it. Oh, that's, so that's interesting. That's yeah, interesting. Yeah, that is. Bruce talks about that m- making music with a band with a group of friends and artists is one plus one equals three. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's a magic in your blog. You were talking about sometimes the people that were teaching you were, you have to go a then B then C and you will share me, I'll share the story. In classical music, if you want to be a composer and you go to graduate school, they have requirements. You have to have four years of theory. You have to have four years of harmony. The, the, and then you're allowed to compose. As a teacher, I was working in Philadelphia and bringing posing to kids in, in difficult circumstances in poorer sections of town who had no musical training. And my feeling was there is no order. All there is is that you wanna capture your student. You wanna make it so they will do whatever they need to do to get to where they wanna go. And so I started with young kids and these were kids, these were inner city kids started with instrument building and we built instruments out of bottles and cans and recycled materials. And then once they had an instrument, of course you have to write music for it. Of course, right? So then we did graphic notation, invented notation. So I was always trying to make the creative process available to them so that they would be gripped with their own sense of creativity. And that is what I wanted to share with them. Not that they would become composers, but that they were creative people. So in this article that I was writing, I think it's the order, it's stability with order. Now, when I came to composing, I had played music for 15 years by myself for at least an hour a day. So I came with a lot of information already in my head. And I'm not sure what I would say to somebody who had never studied any music and wanted to compose. I don't know how I what I would say. And remember that great work is always created because you've done it so much. I remember that they said that to become a great artist, you have to put in 10,000 hours of work on your instrument or on your thing or your, glad, well, has that right, theory. before right. you're a certain age. 
And um, certainly by the time I got out of college, I had well passed that. But he was also saying the Beatles did exactly that. They put in those hours. So when they hit the bigger time, they had practiced together, they had played together, they had created together, they had put in the hours. And I think a lot of times we forget that any great artist has put in hours and hours and hours. And part of the creative process is that overlaying of doing so your cake is really rich and thick. And I always say when a great artist reaches out to get a paintbrush, the paintbrush actually jumps into her hands because she has done it so many times. She knows, the paintbrush knows almost what paint, what brush she needs. So we just have to remember that it's not only great work, but it's willingness to dedicate your time and energy to this thing that you love. When you compose, do you compose on the piano? I do both. I have my desk. I'd have my desk near the piano. I go back and forth. It really depends. But I would say mostly I am creating material with the help of the piano. Absolutely. Yeah. And do you play for fun still? That's a good question. As I get older, I'm getting arthritis and it's harder to play. And I have been writing so much with the publication of this book and writing other projects, writing articles, that my fingers are a little creaky. And I notice when I teach that I can't always play the music as well as I used to. So I'm thinking, oh, I really need to get back and practice. Yeah, because those fingers lose their agility. Sure. What, What was the inspiration for the book? Why did you decide to write a book? I was in the last year of my second marriage. I knew that it was over. And I think metaphorically, I was pulling myself together. (laughs) I was packing my bags, but Mm -hmm. I wanted to write about my relationship to music. I wanted to write about my childhood and some of the difficulties I had and how I wrote about those in my music. And even though the book stops, the time frame of this memoir stops actually before I met my second husband, I think it was about that rite of passage of being 60 and moving ahead, naming where I was and what I had done. So I think that was the impetus of of the book. Now I am really interested in writing about aging and the creative process. What happens when you're 60? What happens when you get older? Uh, There usually isn't an expiration date with uh, artists. There's not a retirement age. They don't, they do kick you out in the sense that there is a kind of ageism in the arts. But so maybe you don't get as many performances unless you're really a star. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe the younger people take over a lot more space. But artists, either they write less or they don't, they they can choose their own path, in other words, where in other jobs, there's less choice. A lot of times people will choose it for you. Okay. Um, Did 
how did you accomplish what you would wanted to accomplish with the book? I think so. Absolutely. I really spoke of my love of the field, my love of writing music. I tried uh, to not get very technical about how I compose, but to explain my inspiration and uh, how I was, I've always felt that my life is the template for my music that I write about myself as I'm evolving. So for instance, the first 10 years that I was composing, I don't think I really knew myself that well. So I call that period sort of writing music out of connection. The okay. second 10 years, I was really exploring myself. So that music was more authentic and more interested in my past and how I was growing. And mm -hmm. then the third and fourth decade has really been about my relationship to the bigger thing. So it might yeah. be what you call God or spirituality or the cosmos or the great energy. And the homework I gave you, which was to listen to Blue Curve of the Earth, yes. is really about my relationship to the world and my love of the world. And that love of there's a picture of the Earth from the from space and yeah. what is this beautiful curve of blue and how much I love our home. Mm -hmm. Do Is there something you wish you have been able to do in your career that you haven't had a chance to do yet? I think artists always want a challenge yeah. and they always, I don't know if it's a wish, but I'm always open to a new adventure, and okay. I don't know what that might be. Certainly writing for the great violinist Hilary Hahn was um, a way of really exploring much more difficult music and knowing that it wouldn't be an impediment to the performer. So I don't know. I'm always open. Okay. Uh, you said you stopped your book at a certain point. Did that just feel like a natural good place to say? Yes, it was a natural. I based a lot of this on my journals that I kept. I've always written a lot of journals. Actually, I've written a lot. It's sort of part of my composing process is to always in the morning read. I always want to be reading and bringing information into my, I feel like I have to feed myself. It's my breakfast meal for my work is to read fiction, nonfiction, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then I usually write for half an hour or more. And that is about tuning into where I am in my life and what I'm thinking, just what I'm thinking. Usually I don't write about what I'm doing. It's not that kind of journal. It's really, what am I thinking? What am I doing? Where am I right now? So I based it a lot on, on those journals. And so the book is structured that there is a short story of my life, like when I'm little. And then the next chapter is a journal, which is in my 30s and 40s, not only writing music and bringing up my daughter, but also looking back at my childhood and trying to understand some things. And so the chapters alternate like that all the way through. So you get these sort of two perspectives. One of the things that I have talked about is when my wife was talking about that she doesn't 
enjoy listening to Bruce Springsteen because she can't understand the words. When he sings, she says he just gravels and he grunts. And I asked her, and this was way back in 2012, we were going to go see him for the second time for her and about the third or fourth time for me. And I said, pretend it's an instrumental. Mm-hmm. Pretend his voice is just another instrument mm-hmm. and see if you can feel the emotion of the song without mm-hmm. trying to understand the lyrics. And that really worked for her. Mm-hmm. And then she later went back and learned some of the lyrics, but the long time it was. What I loved about the, and I've listened to multiple songs of yours that you had composed and done that, is you get that emotion. You get that feeling that is, as you say, it's what it means to me. It's what my life is, not yours. Correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It, do you have any stories to share about people that have reached out to you and have touched you or made you feel special with the way your music has helped them? Yes, uh, although interestingly enough, there is less of a tradition in classical music for an audience member to reach out than there yep. is with writing. And my guess is, I think the popular artists really have a fan base that they cultivate. And I don't want to say cultivate in the money kind of way, but they really have a relationship with with them. And that's a much better way. They care about them. I think the good artists really care about their audiences. And I feel badly that in classical music, we haven't uh, created that for ourselves. Mm -hmm. I think it's more about ownership. I think that popular music, the audience has a sense of ownership. Um, Not that they're telling the artist what to write, but they feel that it's about them as well as about the artists. And we've lost that in classical music to some sense. And and I want to bring it back because in my memoir, people write me or they post their own reviews of it. They they have opinions, they feel entitled. Uh, And my classical music folks might say, oh, how could they have an opinion? What do they know? Which is very elitist. And I really want the music, my field, to have more of what popular artists have, which is a direct connection. Because I think that relationship then makes the artwork really vulnerable, uh, valuable, not vulnerable, valuable and um, connecting. And I love that. Yeah, there is a wonderful scene. I've told the story multiple times, but on the show Treme, they showed singer-songwriter John Hyatt mm-hmm. singing a song called Feels Like Rain. And the two characters on the TV show are listening, and the young female character says, gosh, it's so much about Katrina. And the other character says it was written 15 years before Katrina. And he said, that's the beauty of a great song is it's universal that we find what we need. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what's next for you, Tina? What do you want to do next? I was just in the recording uh, studio about two weeks ago with a jazz bristering quartet and a wonderful pianist named Natalie Zhu. And they recorded five of my works and that will be coming out. That CD will be coming out in the spring. So I'm very excited about that. I have a digital release of a big choral work that's coming out in a month or two. 
And I am starting to think about writing another book. So lots on my plate. That is a lot on your plate. Yes. Mm -hmm. All right. What should I've asked you, Tina, that I haven't? I don't know. You've done a really great job. I've just loved this conversation. Thank you. That's very sweet. Yeah. And how it's just been very enriching and thoughtful. Uh, And I love the context of Bruce Bruce Springsteen because I think um, classical composers give many times short shrift to, they talk down popular music. Yeah. And I think one of our hangups in the classical field is that if you make money, you can't be that good. (laughs) And I always have to laugh at that. I am stealing this story or I'm going to give a guy named Mark Evanier who is a a writer, he's written tons of stuff, but he said he was hearing, he was with a group of people that were all putting down Barry Manilow. Mm -hmm. And they were saying, oh, what he does is easy. That's just, it's just so common denominator. And it's just, it's, that's just so beneath us. And Mark said he resisted, but he wanted to go, I really admire you because you could be making millions of dollars and you're not doing it because it's beneath you. I don't know if I had that ability, I would be able to resist that urge. And I think I think a good example in the classical field was Leonard Bernstein, who is such a wonderful conductor and really an yeah. icon of classical music. And he wrote the musical West Side Story and Candide and classical composers really thought that he had sold out and he wasn't writing good music. Mm -hmm. And the truth is he wrote a musical where there were like song after song was a good song. There's some people who write musicals now that are on Broadway and then maybe they're two good songs. This guy wrote song after song. It's just like amazing. So I always, you know, I don't feel that way. I love good songs. I love good melodies. They are not easy to write. And I have many graduate students who struggle and they want me to Google, like, how do you write a good melody? And I'm like going, yeah, you have to write at least 49 of them first. Uh, When people ask me, how do you get into podcasting? And I'll, I'll give them advice. I said, but just mostly do it. Just do start and, Just do and your first couple episodes will be bad. Or You're maybe they maybe they will be fantastic or right. maybe, I don't know, it doesn't matter. Just Yeah, just do it. Do, it. do what you love to do. Yes. I appreciate that. All right. I'm going to have you a chance. We're going to tell where to reach you and talk about the website and where to find the book. But before that, I end every podcast with a Mary question. That came from a writer named Jay Armstrong. He was a high school teacher at the time. He is now retired. But when he was teaching, he would give his honors English class the lyrics to Bruce Springsteen's song Thunder Road. They would read the lyrics. They would discuss them. They would talk about the imagery Bruce was painting, his choice of words. And then he would ask the class at the end, does Mary get in the car? Tina, that is your question. (laughs) I think you're asking a binary question, a yes or no. And I think like life, there are very few binary answers. And first of all, I love his lyrics. There was both a obtuse both you'd really have to think about them so i don't obtuse is not fair but on the surface obtuse oh what's he saying 
but that makes you have to work a little bit harder and dig down. And I think it doesn't matter. I have no idea if she got into the car or not. It could have gone either way. And I think that's, to me, makes the song stronger, is that it could go either way. And it might be maybe my perception. So that is a wonderful answer, Tina. It is it is not the first time someone has said that. I have had multiple people say that it's the whole purpose of why the song is great is we don't know. One of my favorite answers is Warren Zane, who is a writer, said, this is all in his mind. He's never had the courage to talk to Mary. <laughs> he said, this is, she is that girl on the side that, that, that he just adores. And this is in right. his mind. He's never had the courage to go ask her. Yes. So I love that answer. That's a great answer. Yeah, it's it. It doesn't matter. Go any way. Yeah. yeah. All right. If someone wants to reach you, what's the best way? Super easy. My website is tinadavidson.com. You can reach me by email uh, there. And you can see uh, my book is on amazon.com. The book is called Let Your Heart Be Broken, Life and Music from a Classical Composer. It's on Amazon, but if you forget that, you just look on my website and there are links to it. Um, I am on whatever you stream, probably on Apple or Pandora or just whatever you are on. I'm on SoundCloud. Just look for me there. And I always like to hear from people. So if you want to reach out to me, please do that. Yeah, please go to the website, listen to some music, let your heart be broken, life and music from a classical composer. It is available in paperback, hardcover, or Kindle. I actually, I spent some time on the website. I listened to some of the music and it made my life brighter. So thank you for that, Tina. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes. All right, listeners, go check out the website, check out the book, let her know what you think. But for now, be safe, be kind, and we will talk Mm -hmm. to you soon. Goodbye. You just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music loving, album ranking, fan thinking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast that is the one, the only, Settlers and Bruce. The theme for Settlers and Bruce was written by David Rosen, used by permission. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.